Part 17 of The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 17 Chapter 9 1815 Concluding Operations The Treaty of Peace between the United States and Great Britain was signed at Ghent December 24, 1814 and ratified at Washington February 18, 1815 but during these first two months of eighteen fifteen and until the news reached the cruisers on the ocean the warfare went on with much the same characteristics as before the blockading squadrons continued standing on and off before the ports containing warships with the same unwearying vigilance but the ice and cold prevented any attempts at harrying the coast except from the few frigates scattered along the shores of the carolinas and georgia there was no longer any formidable british fleet in the chesapeake or delaware while at new orleans the only available naval force of the americans consisted of a few small rowboats with which they harassed the rear of the retreating british the constitution captain stewart was already at sea having put out from boston on the seventeenth of december while the blockading squadron composed of the same three frigates she subsequently encountered was temporarily absent the hornet captain biddle had left the port of new london running in heavy weather through the blockading squadron and had gone into new york where the president commodore decatur and peacock captain warrington with the tom bowline brig were already assembled intending to start on a cruise for the east indies the blockading squadron off the port consisted of the fifty-six gun razee majestic captain hayes twenty-four pounder frigate endymion captain hope eighteen pounder frigate pomone captain lumley and eighteen pounder frigate tenedos captain parker footnote letter of rear admiral hotham january twenty third eighteen fifteen end of footnote on the fourteenth of january a severe snowstorm came on and blew the squadron off the coast next day it moderated and the ships stood off to the northwest to get into the track which they supposed the americans would take if they attempted to put out in the storm singularly enough at the instant of arriving at the intended point an hour before daylight on the fifteenth sandy hook bearing west-northwest fifteen leagues a ship was made out on the majestic's weather bow standing southeast footnote letter of captain hayes january seventeenth eighteen fifteen end of footnote this ship was the unlucky president on the evening of the fourteenth she had left her consorts at anchor and put out to sea in the gale but by a mistake of the pilots who were to place boats to beacon the passage the frigate struck on the bar where she beat heavily for an hour and a half footnote letter of commodore decatur january eighteenth eighteen fifteen end of footnote springing her masts and becoming very much hogged and twisted footnote report of court-martial alexander murray presiding april twentieth eighteen fifteen and a footnote 
owing to the severity of her injuries the president would have put back to port but was prevented by the westerly gale footnote decatur's letter january eighteenth and a footnote accordingly decatur steered at first along long island then shaped his course to the southeast and in the dark run into the british squadron which but for his unfortunate accident he would thus have escaped at daylight the president which had hauled up and passed to the northward of her opponents footnote decatur's letter january eighteenth end of footnote found herself with the majestic and andimion astern the pomona on the port and the tenedos on the starboard quarter footnote james volume six page five hundred twenty nine end of footnote the chase now became very interesting footnote letter of captain hayes end of footnote during the early part of the day while the wind was still strong the majestic led the endymion and fired occasionally at the president but without effect footnote letter of commodore decatur and of footnote the pomona gained faster than the others but by captain hayes's orders was signalled to go in chase of the tenedos whose character the captain could not make out footnote james volume six page five hundred twenty nine and of footnote and this delayed her several hours in the chase footnote log of pomona published at bermuda january twenty ninth and quoted in full in the naval chronicle volume thirty three page three hundred and seventy and a footnote in the afternoon the wind coming out light and baffling the endymion left the majestic behind footnote letter of captain hayes and a footnote and owing to the president's disabled state and the amount of water she made in consequence of the injuries received while on the bar gained rapidly on her footnote letter of decatur and a footnote although she lightened ship and did everything else that was possible to improve her sailing footnote letter of decatur and a footnote but a shift of wind helped the endymion footnote cooper volume two page four hundred sixty six and a footnote and the latter was able at about two thirty to begin skirmishing with her bow chasers answered by the stern chasers of the president footnote log of pomona and of footnote at five thirty the endymion began close action footnote letter of captain hayes and of footnote within half point-blank shot on the president's starboard quarter footnote james volume six page five hundred thirty and of footnote where not a gun of the latter could bear footnote letter of decatur and of footnote the president continued in the same course steering east by north the wind being northwest expecting the endymion soon to come up a beam but the latter warily kept her position by yawing so as not to close footnote letter of decatur and of footnote so things continued for half an hour during which the president suffered more than during all the remainder of the combat footnote cooper page four hundred seventy end of footnote at six o'clock the president kept off heading to the south and the two adversaries ran abreast the americans 
using the starboard and the British the port batteries. Footnote, log of Pomone, end of footnote. Decatur tried to close with his antagonist, but whenever he hauled nearer to the latter, she hauled off. Footnote, report of court-martial, end of footnote. And being the swiftest ship, could of course evade him. So he was reduced to the necessity of trying to throw her out of the combat footnote letter of Commodore Decatur and footnote by dismantling her. He was completely successful in this, and after two hours fighting, the Endymion's sails were all cut from her yards footnote letter of Captain Hayes and footnote, and she dropped astern, the last shot being fired from the President footnote log of Pomone and footnote. The Endymion was now completely silent, footnote, log of Pomone, end of footnote, and Commodore Decatur did not board her merely because her consorts were too close astern, footnote, report of court-martial, end of footnote. Accordingly, the President hauled up again to try her chances at running, having even her royal studding-sails set, footnote, James, volume 6, page 538, end of footnote, and exposed her stern to the broadside of the Endymion, footnote, letter of Commodore Decatur, end of footnote, but the latter did not fire a single gun, footnote, log of the Pomone, end of footnote. Three hours afterward, at eleven, footnote, letter of Captain Hayes, end of footnote, the Pomone, caught up with the president and luffing to port gave her the starboard broadside footnote log of the pomone end of footnote the tenedos being two cables lengths distant astern taking up a raking position footnote decatur's letter end of footnote the pomone poured in another broadside within musket shot footnote log of pomone end of footnote when the president surrendered and was taken possession of by Captain Parker of the Tenedos. Footnote, James, volume 6, page 531, end of footnote. A considerable number of the President's people were killed by these two last broadsides. Footnote, letter of Commodore Decatur, March 6, 1815. Deposition of Chaplain Henry Robinson before Admiralty Court at St. George's, Bermuda, January 1815. End of footnote. The Endymion was at this time out of sight astern. Footnote letter of Decatur, January 18th. End of footnote. She did not come up, according to one account, for an hour and three quarters. Footnote log of Pomone. End of footnote. And according to another, for three hours. Footnote letter of Decatur, March 6th. End of footnote. And as she was a faster ship than the President, this means that she was at least two hours motionless repairing damages. Commodore Decatur delivered his sword to Captain Hayes of the Majestic, who returned it, stating in this letter that both sides had fought with great gallantry. Footnote letter of Captain Hayes and a footnote. The President, having been taken by an entire squadron, footnote admiral hotham's letter january twenty third end of footnote the prize money was divided equally among the ships footnote bermuda royal gazette march eighth eighteen fifteen end of footnote the president's crew all told consisted of four hundred and fifty men footnote 
depositions of lieutenant gallagher and the other officers and a footnote none of whom were british footnote deposition of commodore decatur and a footnote she had thus a hundred more men than her antagonist and threw about one hundred pounds more shot at a broadside but these advantages were more than counterbalanced by the injuries received on the bar and by the fact that her powder was so bad that while some of the british shot went through both her sides such a thing did not once happen to the endymion footnote bermuda royal gazette january sixth eighteen eighteen end of footnote when fairly hauled the president lost twenty-four killed and fifty-five wounded footnote decatur's letter end of footnote the endymion eleven killed and fourteen wounded footnote letter of captain hope january fifteenth eighteen fifteen end of footnote two days afterward on their way to the bermudas a violent easterly gale came on during which both ships were dismasted and the endymion in addition had to throw over all her spar-deck guns footnote james volume six page five thirty four end of footnote as can be seen almost every sentence of this account is taken very nearly word for word from the various official reports relying especially on the log of the british frigate pomone i have been thus careful to have every point of the narrative established by unimpeachable reference first because there have been quite a number of british historians who have treated the conflict as if it were a victory and not a defeat for the endymion and in the second place because i regret to say that i do not think that the facts bear out the assertions on the part of most american authors that commodore decatur covered himself with glory and showed the utmost heroism as regards the first point captain hope himself in his singularly short official letter does little beyond detail his own loss and makes no claim to having vanquished his opponent almost all the talk about its being a victory comes from james and in recounting this as well as all the other battles nearly every subsequent british historian simply gives james's statements over again occasionally amplifying but more often altering or omitting the vituperation the pointed issue is simply this could a frigate which according to james himself went out of action with every sail set take another frigate which for two hours according to the log of the pomone lay motionless and unmanageable on the waters without a sail to prove that it could not of course needs some not over-scrupulous manipulation of the facts the intention with which james set about his work can be gathered from the triumphant conclusion he comes to that decatur's name has been sunk quite as low as that of bainbridge or porter which comparing small things to great is somewhat like saying that napoleon's defeat by wellington and blucher sunk him to the level of hannibal for the account of the american crew and loss james relies on the statements made in the bermuda papers of whose subsequent forced retraction he takes no notice and of course largely overestimates both on the same authority 
he states that the president's fire was silenced commodore decatur stating the exact reverse the point is fortunately settled by the log of the pomone which distinctly says that the last shot was fired by the president his last resort is to state that the loss of the president was fourfold in reality threefold that of the endymion now we have seen that the president lost a considerable number of men from the fire of the pomone estimating these at only nineteen we have a loss of sixty caused by the endymion and as most of this was caused during the first half hour when the president was not firing it follows that while the two vessels were both fighting broadside and broadside the loss inflicted was about equal or the president aiming at her adversary's rigging succeeded in completely disabling her and incidentally killing twenty-five men while the endymion did not hurt the president's rigging at all and aiming at her hull where of course the slaughter ought to have been far greater than when the fire was directed aloft only killed about the same number of men had there been no other vessels in chase commodore decatur his adversary having been thus rendered perfectly helpless could have simply taken any position he chose and compelled the latter to strike without suffering any material additional loss himself as in such a case he would neither have endured the unanswered fire of the endymion on his quarter for the first half-hour nor the subsequent broadsides of the pomone the president's loss would probably have been no greater than that of the constitution in taking the java it is difficult to see how any outsider with an ounce of common sense and fair-mindedness can help awarding the palm to decatur as regards the action with the endymion but i regret to say that i must agree with james that he acted rather tamely certainly not heroically in striking to the pomone there was of course not much chance of success in doing battle with two fresh frigates but then they only mounted eighteen pounders and judging from the slight results of the cannonading from the endymion and the two first usually the most fatal broadsides of the pomone it would have been rather a long time before they would have caused much damage meanwhile the president was pretty nearly as well off as ever as far as fighting and sailing went a lucky shot might have disabled one of her opponents and then the other would in all probability have undergone the same fate as the endymion at least it was well worth trying and though decatur could not be said to be disgraced yet it is excusable to wish that porter or perry had been in his place it is not very pleasant to criticize the actions of an american whose name is better known than that of almost any other single ship captain of his time but if a man is as much to be praised for doing fairly or even badly as for doing excellently then there is no use in bestowing praise at all this is perhaps as good a place as any other to notice one or two of james's most common misstatements they really would not need refutation 
were it not that they have been re-echoed as usual by almost every british historian of the war for the last sixty years in the first place james puts the number of the president's men at four hundred seventy five she had four hundred fifty an exactly parallel reduction must often be made when he speaks of the force of an american ship then he says there were many british among them which is denied under oath by the american officers this holds good also for the other american frigates he says there were but four boys there were nearly thirty and on page one hundred twenty he says the youngest was fourteen whereas we incidentally learn from the life of decatur that several were under twelve a favorite accusation is that the american midshipmen were chiefly masters and mates of merchantmen but this was hardly ever the case many of the midshipmen of the war afterward became celebrated commanders and most of these a notable instance being farragut the greatest admiral since nelson were entirely too young in eighteen twelve to have had vessels under them and moreover came largely from the so-called best families again in the first two frigate actions of eighteen twelve the proportion of killed to wounded happened to be unusually large on board the american frigates accordingly james states page one hundred forty six that the returns of the wounded had been garbled underestimated and made subservient to the views of the commanders and their government to support his position that captain hull who reported seven killed and seven wounded had not given the list of the latter in full he says that an equal number of killed and wounded as given in the american account hardly ever occurs except in cases of explosion and yet on page five hundred nineteen he gives the loss of the british hermes as twenty-five killed and twenty-four wounded disregarding the incongruity involved on page one sixty nine in noticing the loss of the united states five killed and seven wounded he says that the slightly wounded as in all other american cases are omitted this is untrue and the proportion on the united states five to seven is just about the same as that given by james himself on the endymion eleven to fourteen and nautilus six to eight in supporting his theory james brings up the instances where the american wounded bore a larger proportion to their dead than on board the british ships but passes over the actions with the reindeer epervier penguin endymion and boxer where the reverse was the case one of james's most common methods of attempting to throw discredit on the much vilified yankees is by quoting newspaper accounts of their wounded thus he says page five hundred sixty two of the hornet that several of her men told some of the penguins sailors that she lost ten men killed sixteen wounded etc utterly false rumors of this kind were as often indulged in by the americans as the british after the capture of the president articles occasionally appeared in the papers 
to the effect that some American sailors had counted twenty-three dead on board the Endymion, that more than fifty of her men were wounded, etc. Such statements were as commonly made and with as little foundation by one side as by the other, and it is absurd for an historian to take any notice of them. James does no worse than many of our own writers of the same date, but while their writings have passed into oblivion, his work is often accepted as a standard. This must be my apology for devoting so much time to it. The severest criticism to which it can possibly be subjected is to compare it with the truth. Whenever dealing with purely American affairs, James's history is as utterly untrustworthy as its contemporary Niles Register is in matters purely British, while both are invaluable in dealing with things relating strictly to their own nation. They supplement each other. On January 8th, General Peckenham was defeated and killed by General Jackson at New Orleans, the Louisiana and the seamen of the Carolina having their full share in the glory of the day, and Captain Henley being among the very few Americans wounded. On the same day, sailing Master Johnson with twenty-eight men in two boats cut out the British armed transport brig Cyprus, containing provisions and munitions of war, and manned by ten men. Footnote, letter of sailing Master Johnson, January ninth, eighteen fifteen, and footnote. On the eighteenth, the British abandoned the enterprise and retreated to their ships and Mr. Thomas Shields, a purser, formerly a sea officer, set off to harass them while embarking. At sunset on the 20th he left with five boats and a gig, manned in all with fifty-three men, and having under him sailing Master Daly and Master's Mate Boyd, footnote, letter of Thomas Shields to Commodore Patterson, January twenty-fifth, 1815, footnote. At ten o'clock p.m. a large barge, containing fourteen seamen and forty officers and men of the fourteenth light dragoons, was surprised and carried by boarding after a slight struggle, the prisoners outnumbering their captors. The latter returned to shore, left them in a place of safety, and again started at two a.m. on the morning of the twenty-second. Numerous transports and barges of the enemy could be seen, observing very little order and apparently taking no precautions against attack, which they probably did not apprehend. One of the American boats captured a transport and five men. Another, containing Mr. Shields himself and eight men, carried by boarding, after a short resistance, a schooner carrying ten men. The flotilla then reunited and captured in succession with no resistance five barges containing seventy men by this time the alarm had spread and they were attacked by six boats but these were repelled with some loss seven of the prisoners who were now half as many again as their captors succeeded in escaping in the smallest prize mr shields returned with the others, seventy-eight in number. 
during the entire expedition he had lost but three men wounded he had taken one hundred thirty two prisoners and destroyed eight craft whose aggregate tonnage about equalled that of the five gun vessels taken on lake borgne on january thirtieth eighteen fifteen information was received by captain dent commanding at north edison georgia that a party of british officers and men in four boats belonging to h m s hebrus captain palmer were watering at one of the adjacent islands footnote letter of lawrence carney of january thirtieth eighteen fifteen see in the archives at washington captain's letters volume forty two number one hundred and a footnote lieutenant lawrence carney with three barges containing about seventy-five men at once proceeded outside to cut them off when the militia drove them away the frigate was at anchor out of gunshot but as soon as she perceived the barges began firing guns as signals the british on shore left in such a hurry that they deserted their launch which containing a twelve pound boat carronade and six swivels was taken by the americans the other boats two cutters and a large tender mounting one long nine and carrying thirty men made for the frigate but lieutenant carney laid the tender aboard and captured her after a sharp brush the cutters were only saved by the fire of the hebrus which was very well directed one of her shot taking off the head of a man close by lieutenant carney the frigate got under way and intercepted carney's return but the lieutenant then made for south edisto whither he carried his prize in triumph this was one of the most daring exploits of the war and was achieved at a very small cost on february fourteenth a similar feat was performed lieutenant carney had manned the captured launch with twenty-five men and the twelve-pound carronade news was received of another harrying expedition undertaken by the british and captain dent with seven boats put out to attack them but was unable to cross the reef meanwhile carney's barge had gotten outside and attacked the schooner brant a tender to h m s severn mounting an eighteen-pounder and with a crew of two midshipmen and twenty-one marines and seamen a running fight began the brant evidently fearing that the other boats might get across the reef and join in the attack suddenly she ran aground on a sand-bank which accident totally demoralized her crew eight of them escaped in her boat to the frigate the remaining fifteen after firing a few shot surrendered and were taken possession of footnote letter of captain dent february sixteenth in captain letters volume forty two number one hundred thirty most american authors headed by cooper give this exploit a more vivid colouring by increasing the crew of the brant to forty men omitting to mention that she was hard and fast aground and making no allusion to the presence of the five other american boats which undoubtedly caused the brant's flight in the first place End of footnote. 
i have had occasion from time to time to speak of cutting out expeditions successful and otherwise undertaken by british boats against american privateers and twice a small british national cutter was captured by an overwhelmingly superior american opponent of this class we now for the only time come across an engagement between a privateer and a regular cruiser of approximately equal force these privateers came from many different ports and varied greatly in size baltimore produced the largest number but new york philadelphia boston and salem were not far behind and charleston bristol and plymouth supplied some that were very famous many were merely small pilot boats with a crew of twenty to forty men intended only to harry the west indian trade others were large powerful craft unequalled for speed by any vessels of their size which penetrated to the remotest corners of the ocean from man to the spice islands when a privateer started she was overloaded with men to enable her to man her prizes a successful cruise would reduce her crew to a fifth of its original size a favorite rig was that of a schooner but there were many brigs and brigantines each was generally armed with a long twenty-four or thirty-two on a pivot and a number of light guns in broadside either long nines or short eighteens or twelves some had no pivot gun others had nothing else the largest of them carried seventeen guns a pivot thirty-two and sixteen long twelves in broadside with a crew of one hundred fifty such a vessel ought to have been a match at her own distance for a british brig sloop but we never hear of any such engagements and there were several instances where privateers gave up without firing a shot to a force superior it is true but not enough to justify the absolute tameness of the surrender footnote as when the epervier some little time before her own capture took without resistance the alfred of salem mounting sixteen long nines and having one hundred eight men aboard End of footnote. one explanation of this was that they were cruising as private ventures and their object was purely to capture merchantmen with as little risk as possible to themselves another reason was that they formed a kind of sea militia and like their compeers on land some could fight as well as any regulars but most would not fight at all especially if there was need of concerted action between two or three the american papers of the day are full of glorious victories gained by privateers over packets and indiamen the british papers are almost as full of instances where the packets and indiamen heroically repulsed the privateers as neither side ever chronicles a defeat and as the narration is apt to be decidedly figurative in character there is very little hope of getting at the truth of such meetings so i have confined myself to the mention of those cases where privateers of either side came into armed 
collision with regular cruisers. We are then sure to find some authentic account. The privateer brig Chasseur of Baltimore, Captain Thomas Boyle, carried sixteen long twelves and had, when she left port, one hundred fifteen men aboard. She made eighteen prizes on her last voyage, and her crew was thus reduced to less than eighty men. She was then chased by the Barossa frigate and threw overboard ten of her long twelves. Afterward, eight nine-pound carronades were taken from a prize to partially supply the places of the lost guns. But as she had no shot of the caliber of these carronades, each of the latter was loaded with one four-pound and one six-pound ball, giving her a broadside of seventy-six pounds. On the 26th of February, two leagues from Havana, the Chasseur fell in with the British schooner St. Lawrence, Lieutenant H. C. Gordon, mounting twelve twelve-pound carronades and one long nine. Her broadside was thus eighty-one pounds, and she had between sixty and eighty men aboard. Footnote, letter of Captain Thomas Boyle of March 2nd, 1815. See Niles and Coggershall. He says the schooner had two more carronades. I have taken the number given by James, page 539. Captain Boyle says the St. Lawrence had on board eighty-nine men and several more, including a number of soldiers and marines and gentlemen of the navy as passengers. James says her crew amounted to fifty-one, exclusive of some passengers, which I suppose must mean at least nine men. So the forces were pretty equal. The Chasseur may have had twenty men more or ten men less than her antagonist, and she threw from five to twenty-one pounds less weight of shot. End of footnote. The Chasseur mistook the St. Lawrence for a merchantman and closed with her. The mistake was discovered too late to escape, even had such been Captain Boyle's intention, and a brief but bloody action ensued. At 1.26 p.m. the St. Lawrence fired the first broadside within pistol shot, to which the Chasseur replied with the great guns and musketry. The brig then tried to close so as to board, but having too much way on, shot ahead under the lee of the schooner, which put her helm up to wear under the chasseur's stern. Boyle, however, followed his antagonist's manoeuvre, and the two vessels ran alongside by side, the St. Lawrence drawing ahead, while the firing was very heavy. Then Captain Boyle put his helm a-starboard, and ran his foe aboard. When, in the act of boarding, her colours were struck at 1.41 p.m., fifteen minutes after the first shot. Of the Chasseur's crew, five were killed and eight wounded, including Captain Boyle slightly. Of the St. Lawrence's crew, six were killed and seventeen, according to James, eighteen wounded. This was a very creditable action. The St. Lawrence had herself been an American privateer called the Atlas, and was of 241 tons, or just 36 less than the Chasseur. The latter 
could thus fairly claim that her victory was gained over a regular cruiser of about her own force captain southcombe of the lottery captain reed of the general armstrong captain ordonneau of the neufchatel and captain boyle of the chasseur deserve as much credit as any regularly commissioned sea officers but it is a mistake to consider these cases as representing the average an ordinary privateer was naturally enough no match for a british regular cruiser of equal force the privateers were of incalculable benefit to us and inflicted enormous damage on the foe but in fighting they suffered under the same disadvantages as other irregular forces they were utterly unreliable a really brilliant victory would be followed by a most extraordinary defeat after the constitution had escaped from boston as i have described she ran to the bermudas cruised in their vicinity a short while thence to madeira to the bay of biscay and finally off portugal cruising for some time in sight of the rock of lisbon captain stewart then ran off southwest and on february twentieth madeira bearing west southwest sixty leagues footnote letter of captain stewart to the secretary of the navy may twentieth eighteen fifteen end of footnote the day being cloudy with a light easterly breeze footnote log of the constitution february twentieth eighteen fifteen end of footnote at one p m a sail was made two points on the port bow and at two p m captain stewart hauling up in chase discovered another sail the first of these was the frigate-built ship corvette cayenne captain gordon thomas falcon and the second was the ship sloop levant captain the honorable george douglas footnote naval chronicle volume thirty three page four hundred and sixty six end of footnote both were standing close hauled on the starboard tack the sloop about ten miles to leeward of the corvette at four p m the latter began making signals to her consort that the strange sail was an enemy and then made all sail before the wind to join the sloop the constitution bore up in chase setting her topmast topgallant and royal studding sails in half an hour she carried away her main royal mast but immediately got another prepared and at five o'clock began firing at the corvette with her two port bow guns as the shot fell short the firing soon ceased at five thirty the cayenne got within hail of the levant and the latter's gallant commander expressed to captain gordon his intention of engaging the american frigate the two ships accordingly hauled up their courses and stood on the starboard tack but immediately afterward their respective captains concluded to try to delay the action till dark so as to get the advantage of manoeuvring footnote naval chronicle volume thirty three page four hundred sixty six end of footnote accordingly they again set all sail and hauled close to the wind to endeavour to weather their opponent but finding the latter coming down too fast for them to succeed they again stripped to fighting canvas and formed on the starboard 
tack in head and stern line the levant about a cable's length in front of her consort the american now had them completely under her guns and showed her ensign to which challenge the british ships replied by setting their colors at six ten the constitution ranged up to windward of the cayenne and levant the former on her port quarter the latter on her port bow both being distant about two hundred and fifty yards from her footnote testimony sworn to by lieutenant w b shubrick and lieutenant of marines archibald henderson before thomas welsh jr justice of the peace suffolk street boston july twentieth eighteen fifteen the depositions were taken in consequence of a report started by some of the british journals that the action began at a distance of quarter of a mile all the american depositions were that all three ships began firing at once when equidistant from each other about two hundred fifty yards the marines being engaged almost the whole time and a footnote so close that the american marines were constantly engaged almost from the beginning of the action the fight began at once and continued with great spirit for a quarter of an hour the vessels all firing broadsides it was now moonlight and an immense column of smoke formed under the lee of the constitution shrouding from sight her foes and as the fire of the latter had almost ceased captain stewart also ordered his men to stop so as to find out the positions of the ships in about three minutes the smoke cleared disclosing to the americans the levant dead to leeward on the port beam and the cayenne luffing up for her port quarter giving a broadside to the sloop stewart braced aback his main and mizzen topsails with topgallant sails set shook all forward and backed rapidly astern under cover of the smoke abreast the corvette forcing the latter to fill again to avoid being raked the firing was spirited for a few minutes when the cayennes almost died away the levant bore up to wear round and assist her consort but the constitution filled her topsails and shooting ahead gave her two stern rakes when she at once made all sail to get out of the combat cayenne was now discovered wearing when the constitution herself at once wore and gave her in turn a stern rake the former luffing to and firing her port broadside into the starboard bow of the frigate then as the latter ranged up on her port quarter she struck at six fifty just forty minutes after the beginning of the action she was at once taken possession of and lieutenant hoffman second of the constitution was put in command having manned the prize captain stewart at eight o'clock filled away after her consort the latter however had only gone out of the combat to refit captain douglas had no idea of retreat and no sooner had he rove new braces than he hauled up to the wind and came very gallantly back to find out his friend's condition at eight fifty he met the constitution and failing to weather her the frigate and sloop passed each other on opposite tacks
exchanging broadsides. Finding her antagonist too heavy, the Levant then crowded all sail to escape, but was soon overtaken by the Constitution, and at about 9.30 the latter opened with her starboard bow-chasers, and soon afterward the British captain hauled down his colors. Mr. Ballard, first of the Constitution, was afterward put in command of the prize. By one o'clock the ships were all in order again. The Constitution had been hulled eleven times, more often than in either of her previous actions, but her loss was mainly due to the grape and musketry of the foe in the beginning of the fight, footnote, deposition of her officers as before cited, and footnote. The British certainly fired better than usual, especially considering the fact that there was much manoeuvring, and that it was a night action. The Americans lost three men killed, three mortally, and nine severely and slightly wounded. The corvette, out of a crew of 180, had 12 men killed and 26 wounded, several mortally. The sloop, out of 140, had seven killed and 16 wounded. The Constitution had started on her cruise very full-handed, with over 470 men, but several being absent on a prize, she went into battle with about 450. Footnote, 410 officers and seamen and 41 marines by her muster-roll of February 19th. The muster-rolls are preserved in the Treasury Department at Washington. End of footnote. The prizes had suffered a good deal in their hulls and rigging, and had received some severe wounds in their masts and principal spars. The Cayenne carried on her main deck twenty two thirty-two pound carronades, and on her spar deck two long twelves and ten eighteen pounder carronades. The Levant carried all on one deck eighteen thirty-two pound carronades and two long nines, together with a shifting twelve pounder. Thus their broadside weight of metal was seven hundred and sixty-three pounds, with a total of three hundred twenty men, of whom sixty-one fell, against the Constitution's seven hundred and four pounds and four hundred fifty men, of whom fifteen were lost, or nominally the relative force was one hundred to ninety-one, and the relative loss one hundred to twenty-four. But the British guns were almost exclusively carronades, which, as already pointed out in the case of the Essex and in the battle off Plattsburgh, are no match for long guns. Moreover, the scantling of the smaller ships was, of course, by no means as stout as that of the frigate, so that the disparity of force was much greater than the figures would indicate, although not enough to account for the difference in loss. Both the British ships were ably handled, their fire was well directed, and the Levant, in especial, was very gallantly fought. As regards the Constitution, her manoeuvring was as brilliant as any recorded in naval annals, and it would have been simply impossible to surpass the consummate skill with which she was handled in the smoke, always keeping her antagonists to leeward, and while raking both of them, not being once raked herself. The firing was excellent, considering the short time the ships were actually engaged, and the fact that it was at night. 
although the fight reflected the greatest credit on her and also on her adversaries footnote there is no british official account of the action james states that the entire british force was only three hundred two men of whom twelve were killed and twenty-nine wounded this is probably not based on any authority captain stewart received on board three hundred and one prisoners of whom forty-two were wounded several mortally curiously enough james also underestimates the american loss making it only twelve he also says that many attempts were made by the americans to induce the captured british to desert while the constitution's officers deny this under oath before justice welsh as already quoted and state that on the contrary many of the prisoners offered to enlist on the frigate but were all refused permission as the loss of the chesapeake had taught us the danger of having renegades aboard this denial by the way holds good for all the similar statements made by james as regards the guerriere macedonian etc he also states that a british court-martial found various counts against the americans for harsh treatment but all of these were specifically denied by the american officers under oath as already quoted i have relied chiefly on captain stewart's narratives but partly as to time etc on the british account in the naval chronicle and a footnote the merits of this action can perhaps be better appreciated by comparing it with a similar one that took place a few years before between a british sloop and corvette on the one side and a french frigate on the other and which is given in full by both james and trude although these authors differ somewhat in the account of it both agree that the frenchman the neride of forty-four guns on february fourteenth eighteen ten fought a long and indecisive battle with the rainbow of twenty-six and avon of eighteen guns the british sloops being fought separately in succession the relative force was almost exactly as in the constitution's fight each side claimed that the other fled but this much is sure the constitution engaging the cayenne and levant together captured both while the nuride engaging the rainbow and avon separately captured neither the three ships now proceeded to the cape de verdes and on march tenth anchored in the harbor of porto praia island of san Diego their merchant brig was taken as a cartel and a hundred of the prisoners were landed to help fit her for sea the next day the weather was thick and foggy with fresh breezes footnote log of the constitution march eleventh eighteen fifteen end of footnote the first and second lieutenants with a good part of the people were aboard the two prizes at five minutes past twelve while mr shubrick senior remaining lieutenant was on the quarter-deck the canvas of a large vessel suddenly loomed up through the haze her hull being completely hidden by the fog-bank her character could not be made out but she was sailing close-hauled and evidently making for the roads 
Mr. Shubrick at once went down and reported the stranger to Captain Stewart, when that officer coolly remarked that it was probably a British frigate or an India man, and directed the lieutenant to return on deck, call all hands, and get ready to go out and attack her. Footnote Cooper, volume 2, page 459. End of footnote. At that moment the canvas of two other ships was discovered, rising out of the fog astern of the vessel first seen. It was now evident that all three were heavy frigates. Footnote, letter of Lieutenant Hoffman, April 10, 1815. In fact, they were the Newcastle, 50, Captain Lord George Stewart, Leander, 50, Captain Sir Ralph Collier, KCB and Acasta, 40, Captain Robert Kerr, standing into Porto Praia, close-hauled on the starboard tack, the wind being light, northeast by north, footnote, Marshall's Naval Biography, Volume 2, page 535, end of footnote, Captain Stewart at once saw that his opponents were far too heavy for a fair fight and knowing that the neutrality of the port would not be the slightest protection to him he at once signalled to the prizes to follow cut his cable and in less than ten minutes from the time the first frigate was seen was standing out of the roads followed by hoffman and ballard certainly a more satisfactory proof of the excellent training of both officers and men could hardly be given than the rapidity, skill, and perfect order with which everything was done. Any indecision on the part of the officers, bungling on the part of the men, would have lost everything. The prisoners on shore had manned a battery and delivered a furious but ill-directed fire at their retreating conquerors. The frigate, sloop, and corvette stood out of the harbor, in the order indicated on the port tack passing close under the east point and a gunshot to windward of the british squadron according to the american or about a league according to the british accounts the americans made out the force of the strangers correctly and their own force was equally clearly discerned by the acasta but both the newcastle and leander mistook the Cayenne and Levant for frigates, a mistake similar to that once made by Commodore Rogers. The Constitution now crossed her top-gallant yards and set the foresail, mainsail, spanker, flying jib, and top-gallant sails, and the British ships tacking made all sail in pursuit. The Newcastle was on the Constitution's lee quarter and directly ahead of the Leander, while the Acasta was on the weather quarter of the Newcastle. All six ships were on the port tack. The Constitution cut adrift the boats towing astern, and her log notes that at 12.50 she found she was sailing about as fast as the ships on her lee quarter, but that the Acasta was luffing into her wake and dropping astern. The log of the Acasta says we had gained on the sloops, but the frigate had gained on us. At one ten the Cayenne had fallen so far astern and to leeward 
that Captain Stewart signalled to Lieutenant Hoffman to tack, lest he should be cut off if he did not. Accordingly, the lieutenant put about and ran off toward the northwest, no notice being taken of him by the enemy beyond an ineffectual broadside from the sternmost frigate. At 2.35 he was out of sight of all the ships and shaped his course for America, which he reached on April 10th. Footnote, letter of Lieutenant Hoffman, April 10th, 1815. End of footnote. End of part 17.